Shabbat Shalom, everyone. My name is Noel Joshua Halley. This is the Unexpected Cosmology. And uh, I've, I've been sick a lot over the last couple of weeks, and I think I've finally recovered. Uh, I had to cancel a couple recording just because I was under the weather. But uh, I am drinking tonight uh, some tea that was prepared personally by Don. And we actually sell this in the store. This is, um, Don has a lot of products in there. He's He's got tons of stuff. He's got all these teas and stuff. This is Don's respiratory herbal tea. It's amazing. And uh, I, I, Rebecca shipped this out to me uh, last weekend. And I, I came to my house on Wednesday and I started drinking this and Im immediately it started working. So uh, thank you, Don, for that. And uh, if anyone wants to check out, you know, Don's teas and other products. We have them in our store. It's a great way to support the local vendors, uh, people like Don, but also uh, the ministry, the Unexpected Cosmology. Uh, this also came to my house this week. Uh, if you can see this under the camera, I am so excited to have this out. So excited to pull this out of the, uh, see this on my front porch. This is Bazora Kifa by yours truly, Noel Joshua Hadley. Uh, this is the, the Gospel of Peter, a commentary. To my knowledge, and I've said this before, I, if there is a commentary on the Gospel of Peter, I have never read it. I've never seen it. Uh, so in the history of Christianity, of, on the official records, this is your first ever commentary. And initially when I um, started to write this, I was like, oh, I could knock this out in a week, maybe two. you know. And then it ended up being like a four-month project. Um, this thing is thick. It's, it's every line. Just some of you guys were there for the study. And... Um, Rebecca, who edited the book for me, uh, she said that this was her favorite paper that I've ever written, that she's ever read, and she really enjoyed it. But then, of course, she just edited my next book that's about to come out, The Glorious Appearing of Yahushua HaMashiach, which should be out in the next month or so, and then she said that was her favorite, so um, something to look forward to. And then this, of course, just came to, um, this is a thick magazine. This is the t uh, the Tuck Magazine, the Unexpected Cosmology. This is the August issue. I know by the time this video goes out, it's gonna be September. Uh, we the September magazine's already on sale, but this just arrived on my doorstep. And um, this is like, let's see if I could show you a page here. I mean, excuse me, so this is this um, yeah, chock full of of. Uh, this isn't exactly. You're not gonna get glamour fashion in here. You know, this isn't this isn't pigeon glitter. If that's what you're looking for in a magazine. Uh, this isn't, you know, Vogue or Cosmo. Uh, this is a literary magazine and lots of guest writers, a lot of articles, a lot of different subjects. This one here actually has an original article by Zen Garcia um, and um, his work on the feminine Ruach HaKadosh, uh, my article on pre-existence, and uh, my biography article on Zen Garcia as well. There's a lot of Zen Garcia in this issue and, and other good stuff. So um, one of the ways you support this ministry. Well, let's get right into this. I think uh, you guys have confirmed with me that we ended last week with chapter three. We read one through three of Book of Britain, and it was uh... – my microphone just turned off. My computer is being frustrating right with me right now. Uh, last week, afterwards, we were talking a little bit about the, the queen that was mentioned in uh, – maybe it was chapter two, and uh, her – I'm going to mispronounce this probably, but uh, Budica. Hopefully I got that right. And, of course, she died in 61 to 62-ish. It seems to be the dates. Not really sure. Uh, but this was, like, so epic. 
And I like, why haven't they made this into a movie yet? Um, at the time, I it's a little embarrassing. I, I hadn't done my research on her, but you know, I've been reading up on her, and I think I assumed last week that she died in the battle. She didn't actually die by the sword. She actually poisoned herself afterwards. Uh, instead of being captured, she knew that um, if she was captured by the Romans, uh, they would do some very naughty things to her, and and so she, you know, died with some dignity. And interestingly, okay, so Joseph of Arimathea was still alive at this time. All right, so do some math on this. This is 61 AD. Now, one of the things we were talking about is the possibility that Joseph of Arimathea was Yahusha's grandfather. Now, I had said he's a great uncle. I'm, I still don't know. It could be either. But uh, apparently uh, a few of you have confirmed that uh, Stephen Pigeon, who did the Sefer, his research, that his conclusions have led him to Joseph being Yahusha's grandfather through Miriam, not through Joseph, but through Miriam. And um, that's really interesting. Now, keep in mind that if Yahusha had never died on the cross and he just lived to be an old man, by 61 AD, assuming he was born in what, 3 BC? Was it September 11, 3 BC? I think the year was. Um, he would have been well into his 60s. So, how old is Joseph of Arimathea? If Miriam is 12 years older, so now we're like 75, does that make Yosef, I mean, I think 95, I'm thinking more like 100 to 510. I think he was probably pretty old by this point. Um, and of course, he died of natural causes as an old man. So let's get right into this tonight. Chapter four, the writings of Aristolas. Hopefully you guys enjoyed this last week and you're in for a treat this week. I think you're going to really enjoy this. This is an account of the coming of certain wise strangers to the Seagirt realm of Britain, taken from the books of Britain and rewritten into the appendices to the Bronze Book, this being that part safeguarded by Roland Gasson. Now, probably no reason to comment on this, but all that we've, like all the sayings of Yahushua HaMashiach from last week, those two came from another book. None of these original books have survived. These are they've taken these and they've compiled it into this book, unfortunately. Maybe they do, you know, exist in the Vatican vault. You guys know how that works. After our Adonai died, having been hung on the cross outside the city walls of Yerushalayim, Yosef of Abramatha, that'd be uh, Arimathea, uh, took Miriam, the mother of Yehusha, into his home until Yochanan could make suitable arrangements. Now, that's interesting right there because um, that seems to relay the idea that, uh, that she was to become the mother of Yochanan according to the Gospel of uh, the Zora Yochanan. And you guys you know, know that I've toyed with the theory that he is not the disciple whom Yahushua loved, that it's actually uh, Miriam of Migdal. It doesn't disprove it, but it, it does seem like there was a transfer to Yochanan according to this. Which is again strange if if uh, Yosef is the father of Miriam, like I don't why not just take her back in? I don't know. Maybe that wasn't the custom. I don't know. Then he was called guardian of the lady, Yosef of Arimathea, which title became confused in Britain with the that of guardian of the sacred vessel. I I think that might be a reference to the um, uh, uh, you guys know what I'm talking about the cup the cup of the last supper 
Holy Grail. Aristotle wrote these things in the sacred island, and this is his prayer. In silence, hands uplifted, heart humbled, and mind stilled, your servant presumes to come into your presence, great understanding one. Grant me the abounding joy of union with your spirits. Grant that all my deeds be in harmony with the great law, and that I learn to acquire wisdom, so I may illuminate the hearts of men. Let me embrace your spirit in full knowledge of my twofold nature. Guide my feet upward uh, towards the great law by which all true seekers find the light. As long as my body and spirit remain together, so long will I preach to men, seeking always to awaken a response in their hearts. Bless me with sweetness of speech and harmony of voice. Help keep me from the grip of greed and from the loud-mouthed futilities and frivolities of illiterate men. Spare me the sad companionship of the sanctimonious ones. And of course, the great law, uh, you guys know what that is. That's the uh, Torah, Yahuwah's instructions in righteous living. Elohim of my heart, son of my life, keeper of my circle of content, fill this place with the divine emanations from your being. Attune with the circle of truth and the circle of light. Make me receptive to the lessons and inspirations of life. Yosef, our father in faith, now the uh, Yosef of, of Rama of Arimathea, came across the storm-tossed seas to the place called Balgwith, and from thence to Tashan, where he met the envoy of the king, who was sorely troubled. For the chief of all Druthin, called Troutus, was away at the meeting place of his gods, where he came in a wondrous way every 19 years. There the ceremony lasted three moons. I take that to mean three months. When Troutus returned, he met Yosef at the place now called Henmehu, because of the strange trees that grow there. The Druthan held a feast of welcome in the place called Nimaton, which is below the great hill. The chief of all Druthan washed his face, his hands, and his feet. Then a white goat was led out and sacrificed on a four-horned altar. Troutus washed his hands again and made an offering of salted barley cakes and gave some to Yosef, called Ilid, by the people here. Then the goat's thighs were burnt on the altar while a lesser priest mixed the sacrificial blood with water and black wine. Then barley cakes and a chalice containing the blood, wine, and water were passed through three sacred horns before being given to the chief's presence. Then youths danced around the fire over the sacrificial pits. Then priests of a lower order prepared tables for a feast while the common people sat around on logs made smooth at the top. It's like a light flickering above me. I don't know if you can see that. The sacrificial beast, having been first offered to the gods of this place, was eaten by the common folk all except the liver, which, being the seats of blood and life, was kept for the diviners. These found that the right wing of the liver was broken, so they prophesied that no enemy would enter the land. Now, the king called together a great conclave of the people, and the Druthan were there. The king said to our father, Speak now before the people. Tell us of your ways, and we will judge whether they be worthy. Yosef spoke a tongue understandable to these people, but he spoke slowly and not after their fashion. So that's a little interesting right there. So uh, whatever Yosef's history is in Britain, and I would like to learn more about that. I actually just ordered a couple of books trying to research and get more answers on that. It appears he can speak their language, the, the you know, of uh, greater Gaul, of whatever the local language would be there, but it's, 
it's not you know the local slang maybe he had like a california tongue and you know kind of like me here in the south where a lot of people have the southern drawl our father said as the light came first and called the eye into being to see it so it is with god who the already existing light is the heart does not create the thought but the thought produces the heart this so it could manifest for the heart is created to serve thoughts in the world of effects the world of causes lies in another kingdom it's a very platonic message the druthan said the light we know by the way and i i, I say that because it, it's it's coming more to knowledge now that plato actually people said he ripped off the, the egyptian mysteries he actually ripped up ripped off the druids and so here you have a Yosef coming and speaking a message which the druids were like we can get behind that the truth said the truth and said the light we know and have these things are not strange to us all light comes from an original crystal which is always virgin and we say the behavior of light is the foreordained symbol to man that right there if anyone has seen the um the, the really weird uh I think it was a Ridley Scott, the movie from the 80s, Legend, where the unicorns were like pure virgin light. Kind of reminds me of that, that these crystals that are the light of the world that, uh, you know, they're always virgin. Yosef, our father, said, I have not come to batter down your house of hope, for it has many pleasing features. And he's saying, look, there's, there's, I'm not here to destroy your worldview. There's some great things you guys have to say, you know, even just as my own, even as our own. So let us not disagree, but take the best from both and discarding what is less good, fashion something of value to all. Let us weigh one thing against the other, rejecting that which less clearly shows the way. Now that right there is fighting words for some, but I think Yosef, you know, he, he knew that, that the truth was of Yahushua HaMashiach. And he's like, look, let's just weigh this out. If you want to reject him, fine. But, um, you know, I'm going to show that, you know, he knew what he was talking about. The king said to the chief of all Druthan, do we not have the source of light in a grail egg? Um, does anyone know what that is? I, I honestly don't know. It's a little embarrassing. I don't know what a grail egg is. I know about the, the Mithrian egg, but I don't know what the grail egg is. The Druthan replied, the sun shines not and the issuers or servants of light will not come without the presence of the great gleamer, which provides their sustenance. Man, I need to polish up on my Druid. There can be no incarnation of light on earth unless there be behind it a greater light. I agree with that. But the fact that we know that there is light, like the, the sun in the sky, that it actually points to a greater light beyond the sun. Fully agree with that. Yosef said, when I was shipbound and I, I had a vision of Elohim, or of God, the eyes of my spirit were opened and I saw him in all his glory. Then I understood that there was no difference between the nature of his spirit and the spirits of men only that his was of an infinitely greater purity. This I knew for sure. Elohim and man are of the one essence. I knew we are all rays of the one light, sparks from the one flame, yet the flame is not the fire, for what flame can call itself into being? And what he basically saying, this is like straight out of Second Enoch, guys. He's saying that the, the, the light burst forth and you know, you know, all light came from it, it expanded out and created everything you know we everything from us we originate from the creator is basically in the most simplest terms what he's saying 
Yosef said, if fire can be contained in wood to leap forth when two pieces are heated through rubbing together, yet remain hidden within the wood, then surely it can be so with the soul within man. I love this. This is this is a, a great argument for uh, pre-existence. Well, I, I'm, I don't believe in reincarnation. This argument is used for reincarnation a lot. And the, the, the idea is, is that if, if wood, you know, if fire is energy and fire comes from the wood and it consumes the wood, the energy does not cease to exist. And that energy can become wood again. So this idea that we can lose our body, uh, that doesn't mean we cease to exist. Our energy continues on. I think that's what essentially what he's saying there. The chief of all, Juthan said, and of course, you know, the, the chief and Yosef, they're like, you know, you know, you know, seeing who, which captain has the bigger telescope here. They're, they're going back and forth with uh, their knowledge to see who can, you know, out, you know, out knowledge the other person. The chief of all, Juthan said, often have I thought on this. All men are alike in nature and all aspire to the same goal. All seek to make the same journey's end, only the route differs. Therefore, let us not argue whether man, men should follow your road or mine, but find between us a path better than either. One priest said, what of the worlds within the ever-moving circles? Yosef replied, the hidden worlds are numbered as sands on the seashore. If a man concerns himself with many things, he benefits none and derives no benefit himself. Let us concern ourselves with this world first. Now, this is a really interesting, it's going to take me forever to get through this tonight, guys. I apologize. Uh, this is, I was reading this going, this is interesting. Um, this idea of worlds within worlds. And um, this is a whole teaching itself. I don't have time to go in tonight, but I think what might be being spoken here, one of the theories that I'm uh, starting to try to think through is are the, the seven planets, uh, by planet, you know, I mean wandering star, that this, of course, represented, we see it on the menorah, we see you know, a lot of sevens. Are these seven wandering stars actually worlds? Um, are they actually, if you if you look at the moon map and you understand that the moon is, a, you know, it's, it's a projection of the earth. Well, are these seven planets also projections of the different layers of heaven? So as you move further out, are each of them the, you know, this, we, we know there's seven layers in heaven. Are each of the planets actually you're looking kind of into the next heaven? Um, and th that's one of the mysteries, I think, here of the, of the, of the, the, the worlds that they're talking about, but within the, the circle, within the sphere. The Druthan said, who can change the natures of men? For these are fixed by the gods. Yosef answered, all things can be changed, but not always for the better. Change and life are inseparable. Yosef went on to say, because you are folk who work the land, bringing it to fruitfulness, you are not to be despised. Let the newcomers with their armed might say as they will, you are workers with Elohim. Were not the sons of Elohim also called the sons of the plow? Did they not fight against the sons of men who were hunters eating raw fish like the beast and worshiping serpents which crawl on their bellies? That is a fascinating uh, account of the sons of Elohim versus the sons of Cain. Or maybe even the, the pre-Adamites. I, I don't really know. There have always been some who worship things of insensitive wood and stone, groveling in the dust at their feet, and those who worship the highest they can, can see, the sun and the stars, 
others reach out beyond these. And that seems pretty self-explanatory. Some people look up to the sun and they worship it because it's the brightest light, never thinking that it's actually should be directing us to a greater light beyond that sun, which of course we know that Yahushua HaMashiach is the light, right? One of the Druthan asked, what know you what know you of the eye of God in men? Uh-oh. <laughs> oh, hold on something. Here we go. Yosef replied, What is written in the heart is the eye of Elohim and men. This sees everything. Knowing right from wrong, it puts things in instant perspective. Men in whom this eye is closed are little better than the beasts of the field and forest. I come as one who opens the eyes of such as these. So he's saying that there is a, quote, an eye, a, not these two eyes, but an eye within the body that if, the, you know, if you're unable to see through that eye, then you're no better than the beast is what he's saying. That, that this, there's an eye that uh, directs you to greater spiritual uh, realities, basically being able to see beyond the light of the sun, if you get the drift. Let's see. In the beginning, the king had listened in silence and was tolerant because he felt he could indulge these strangers. Now, as he saw that their teachings might prevail. So remember, you know, he keeps saying, well, no, well let, I think he's a little afraid. He's like, well, okay, if you're not going to go with my teachings, let's find a different option. Let's find a third route. But he's seeing that Yosef's teachings are actually prevailing. So now he's not too happy about that. He became angry and unreasonable. And of course, you become angry because there's only two prime emotions, right? Love or fear. Anger derives from fear, so he's fearful, he's afraid of losing uh, his power, his control, his influence, he's angry, he's becoming unreasonable, you know, what happens when you lose the debate, you come to name-calling and, you know, illogical accusations. As it happens in instances such as these, he said, who gives you authority to speak in this manner? Who sent you and did you come to spy on us? To whom do you make report? Yosef said, know this, great king. I am a servant of the great Elohim of light. All right, so he's directing us, of course, Yahushua HaMashiach. I am sent in order to build a church here where, where it will serve your people well. I will establish a place of light unto them. I come to teach the perfect commandments. So when, when it talks about in here the greater law, you know, that there's this great law that comes from heaven, well, he just told you the perfect commandments. We know what that is. This is the greater law of, you know, the unchangeable, the Torah abides. Ask among your own about me, for I am not unknown to them. I have no human teacher from whom I learned the wisdom from whence I got these things. I lived in the light of Mashiach, but learned tardily. Then I had a message from Elohim himself. Go preach to those who dwell at the edge of the earth. Imagine having to learn the, um, the wisdom of heaven from your grandson or your uh, uh, great-nephew, if, if he's a great-uncle, give or take. Obviously, a lot of family is not able to do that, but, you know, Joseph shows himself to be a, a very humble man, obviously, and obviously very righteous. The king said, how comes it that these things have been revealed to you, while the same Elohim who reigns here has not revealed them to us, even though we were the lords of this land? Are you a man of significance this side of the water, wide waters? Yosef answered, those who are established in the Elohim of light need no mentors, and they take pride in their insignificance. For it is said, 
The first shall be last and the last first. The lowly shall be raised up and the haughty cast down. He's getting that from the teachings of Mashiach. We do not seek after gold or worldly possessions. Of myself, I have no power, but I have power from Elohim. It is Elohim who commands, and it is he who makes a true man of Elohim. There was much talking and long discourses on the nature of Elohim, and the Druth then challenged Yosef to produce him, saying, Though you decry our images, yet we do have likenesses of our gods, while you lack even these. Your words are mere puffs of wind. These things and more were said, and the Druthan believed, but tardily. Then at Midsummer Festival, the chief of all, the Druthan, collapsed on the processional walk, denying himself the reviving droughts, droughts prepared by uh, Islas, his daughter. He died in the arms of Yosef, our father. It was he who received the moon chalice and the lights of Britain. The Druthan held the secrets of the great temple of the stars, and theirs was the royal isle and the kingdom of Kivinid. All right. Chapter 5, the writings of Abreus. Now, now, I'll get to it. I write in terrible times. My people have been driven to black despair, and the most cruel of foes has taken our fair land. Um, I think, now, they talked about it at the end of it, but I think when he's talking about I write in terrible times, that this is written during the time of the person we know as King Cole. And uh, the, as I explained last week, that he was, according to the British, that he was the father of Helena, who was the mother of Constantine. So Cole would have been the grandfather of Constantine. And what, what's unique about him is that he was uh, of the Christian faith. And he, you know, held to it in a time when the, uh, the, the, Outsiders, pagans were coming in, uh, barbarians were coming in and, you know, trying to destroy Britain. I think he originally, I think he finally ended up dying, uh, drowning in a swamp, or a bog, uh, trying to escape the enemy. So didn't end well for him. But anyways, my people have been driven to black despair and the most cruel of foes has taken our fair land. The wisdom which flows through my pen, tutored by Isbathadin, the younger, is as set into writing by our father Aristolas and by the great ones who gave us the annals Roman Norum, which we hold in part clinging like the thundervine to what is left. I am no weaver of words, and if fine phrases bedeck what I transcribe, they are the work of better hands than mine. I am not uh, as a teller of tales who sits before the hall fire, a waster of words like women over the fuller's tub, those who wear the red robes, seems like he's pretty good with words. I disagree with him here. <laughs> Those who wear the, the red robes of nobility have passed over the misty seas, and the land lies barren of learning. The Firth, uh, the Firth Rag have taken over the dwellings of the wise, and the three pillars of progress, wisdom, courage, and beauty no longer stand against uh, mere magic. I speak of one named Yahusha, who was Jesus, come to earth as a godling, the much abused one, but does not the lawman whose case is bad abuse his opponent? I speak of those who followed him and suffered in the dark days of oppression. The anger of the people smoldered against the just ones, the followers of Yahusha, as Yahusha had foretold while still in the body. 
Then the time came when the dragon of disaster awoke. How epic is that? Thirsting for blood, whose blood the, the followers of Yahusha. And it began to stalk its prey while lie mongers fanned the smoldering embers of hatred into flame. So who were the lie mongers? Now we know in, in uh, the book of Acts, the whole theme of the books of Acts is about false testimony. It's about testimony, false testimony. You have uh, Kepha being accused of false testimony. He has to go before Yaakov and the, and the council and give te testimonies to his vision that it was about people and not animals. Uh, you have uh, Paul giving three different testimonies, so which may or may not agree with each other, but he's giving a testimony in which he testifies before uh, the uh, Talmudim, the apostles. Meanwhile, the Jews are giving false testimony as to uh, Stephen. So Stephen is stoned under the, the, the lie that he did away with the Torah. And of course, Saul at that time believed that, but then they accused Paul of doing away with the Torah. And so he's stoned for that. Of course, he, he lives the stoning. But then if you read books like um, uh, one book, which I want to go through with you guys, The Acts of Kepha and Paul, it's amazing because the Jews then write a letter to Nero saying how, uh, how Kepha and Paul have done away with the Torah. And it's right in there in that book, and then you know they're accused of it, and they, they didn't. It was lies, right? So you have all these lie these liars going around fanning the flames that are you know causing the persecution of the followers of Yahusha HaMashiach. The king of the land was stirred up to anger, and the hatred of the people became an all-consuming fire. Now, I don't know what this lie was that went against the Christians there, but obviously it was bad. The wolves came out of their dark forests and suddenly fell upon the flocks of innocent, innocent sheep and rented them apart. Wild bears burst among the sheepfolds and ravaged them. Evil motivated ones came and cut down the apple-bearing trees, and the star-glanced uh, star nights were woeful. Beasts trampled the flower gardens while eagle hawks swooped down among the uh, dove, dovecoats. The the earthen ones broke. The cold out servants of the high Elohim entered the arena of vile entertainments like children before their teachers. And of course, we know that there was the circus that Nero put on and he's talking about the Colosseum, of course, too. I mean, I, I assume maybe he's talking about Rome, but you know, the context here is Britain. So I don't know if there were arenas in Britain, especially if it was Roman at this time. Uh, if they had come in and conquered, maybe they put in some entertainment for them. I don't know. They were thrown into the path of the lions. Some they equipped with weapons and forced to fight with bears. Women were scented with the smell of heat-angered beasts. That's awful. And children stood frozen with fright. Their bodies were shredded like the paper of Egypt. Apparently Egypt didn't make good paper. They moaned pitifully like oxen awaiting the slaughter, and their children were murdered before their eyes. They were raised up by throngs on the wrist, their feet pressing on thorns or on heated plates or over small fires. Many were thrown into prisons to die of hunger, thirst, and cold. In the days when the Druthan looked darkly on the enlightened ones, the hammer of Elohim said to the king, it is in the nature of people placed such as we to fear those who wield the weapons, but we have ones who is more to be feared than you, and he is, is one to whom I look up. I stand in awe of the Great One who is strong enough to overlook your present power 
but who will surely call you to account in the life to come? The king said, where is your temple? The reply was, a true servant of Elohim has no need of a temple built of wood and stone. It was to tell of such things that the anointed one came to awake sleeping men drunk with the heavy droughts of sensuality and lewdness. He came to open the eyes of men to their carnal degradation, which corrupts their spiritual natures. He came to open their eyes to their divine destiny and to show them the hidden sparks of divinity, captive and suffering in the carnal natures of apathetic men. So the idea here is that uh, we, we were all at one time the sons of Elohim. And, you know, we were up in heaven, we fell, and we came down here to the earth and to these fleshly bodies to, you know, carnal desires and uh, that corrupts our, you know, our, our spiritual nature, you know, darkens our vision to the, to the, our status. When we talk about the divine, our status as the sons of Elohim, which is one of the reasons we can call you Husha HaMashiach, our brother, right? He is the son of the most high and there are these sons of Elohim. And um, yeah, there are those who prefer the dregs of darkness to the living power of light, which flows from Yahusha. Isn't that the truth? Most people prefer the darkness than the, the most people prefer this, the light from the sun rather than the greater light above. Uh, son of dewy, sap of the trees, sweetness of the fruits and perf perfume of the flowers, bread of heaven, that would be manna, and shepherd of souls. He is the river of sweet waters arriving, arising at the spring of truth. I am in agreement. I am an, I am an unwor unworthy one in the telling of these tales. Great inspirer, give me a ray of inspiration to raise my voice, as it were, from the mystic cauldron, sister vessel to the ice-clear chalice. I will lay the dowry of the mystic maid at the feet of the discriminating ones. The smoothest of my lay flows from the bubbling brew from out of the great cauldron. I am one of Elohim's inspired and not numbered among mere poets yapping at the heels of high-brow bards. I am not one aspiring to the noble chair whose words must be proved by privilege and truth. Where are the grave, high-brow druids of the past and the wonder-making bards? Those who thrive today cannot rise to the sky heights of song, even though their melody-making wings ache with fluttering. They are like the food pot placidly bubbling over the red grain coals. How epic is this? People don't write like this anymore. O comforter of the calmy tribes, welcome me into the lush dominions of field and forest. O champion of the thrusting sharp spear, hear my petition thrown out into the three circled expanses of power. Let us feast at the overflowing uh, cauldrons of peace and let us, your people, sleep in the downy, heather-scented beds of tranquility. Protect the holy sanctuary of the blue gand bards where valor is honored and chastity cherished. The raging assailants, protectors of slothful ways, labors of concealed mysteries surround us. We call on the guardian bulwark of celestial power to become the smasher of shields. When was the last time you prayed like this? Praying on the, uh, on the most high become the smasher of shields. How straightly comfortable scribe am I who reconciles the mystic daughter with the lowly mother, who places the crystal clear chalice beside the blood-filled golden cup, who combines the divine circle with the eternal cross 
and the sorrowful son with the triumphant fighting father. In the beginning, only the absolute existed in the firmament. I, I think, Pamela, you were commenting to me in the Paleo-Hebrew, I think if I, if, uh, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, you were saying that the firmament actually was not created on the second day. Uh, we generally have the idea that it was. And so correct me if I'm wrong, but that's kind of interesting because he says, in the beginning, the, only the absolute existed in the what? The firmament. So called Nuvri by the Britons and Kugat by the Welsh of the West, the spirit of life spread outward from the hub to form Gwynvidden, the region of light and the circle of spirituality. It looks like Pam was typing now, so maybe she'll correct me. This opened out to Anden, which is the circle of germinal existence at the inner edge of which was the circle of corporeality. This spread out to a bread, which is the mass material plane and the circle of trial, testing and tribulation. So what they're saying is, is that uh, as this light of the creator expands, it finally comes down to the material plane. All right. So he is in the immaterial, you know, spiritual plane of existence above the firmament. And it comes down here to the material plane. And it says that this is the place of trial, testing and tribulation. If you want to know the secret of life. This is it. I've just given you the secret of life. The secret of life is that we are we are here to discover our place in heaven as formerly pre-existent son of Elohim to reclaim that through trial, testing, and tribulation. We're here to be tested to see if we are worthy. And tribulation is a good thing. It is here to uh, to to refine us, right? To, to chastisement is a good thing. Uh, Yahuwah has created a perfect world uh, in nature to bring us through the trial, back, to, uh, restore it to our former state. And uh, anyone who looks at the world and, you know, I was taught that um, it kind of in my young earth creationism upbringings that it's a sad state the world's in. You know, it's, it's all fallen to, you know, but it's like, no, 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 no. The, the world was created this way with the weather, with the fire, with, you know, the, the decay and the, the different geological columns and the floods and the, you know, everything happening, the forests and the fires and so on and so forth. It's all part of the process of, 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 I'm just rambling at this point, but hopefully you understand what he's saying. It is a place of experiment that the, the realm we live in here, an experience of for gaining knowledge, the knowledge that we have lost, the knowledge of heaven. That it, it comes down, but it's 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 you know it's very muffled down here. You know we're we're getting the signals and we're trying to understand it, but you know we're here to regain what we lost, gaining knowledge, wisdom. Wisdom is better than knowledge. Uh, it's superior to knowledge. A, a fool can be knowledgeable. Uh, knowledge, wisdom, and spirituality. Of course, carnal desires of the flesh uh, dampen our spirit, right? Below this is Anun, the Sea of Souls. Here is the lake of unspecialized soul stuff, which is forged and fashioned and bred and perfected in Gwynvidden. In a bread was the garden of Kerahimish, through which flowed the river Nara. Here dwelt Kili and Kithwin. Here were born Durwidan, the first of the Druthin, Gwyn. Man, I'm butchering this. I'm sorry, guys. Quinnadindon, uh, who sounds like a dinosaur name. Uh, 
Gwynedidonosaurus, who composed the first song, and Tidane, who was the first bard. And I, I, I probably need to refer back earlier to Colbrand. They, they might be rehearsing here the original men and women uh, around paradise. I'm not sure. Don't quote me on that. It is said that there were two classes of druids, the dry, uh, the dryons who were masters of medicine and divination, and the druthen who were superior and gifted with twin sight and magic. The first had their seat at Abri, while the druthen had their seat at uh, Innes uh, Savalon, the island of indestructible apples. That sounds like a fun island to go to. Don't have to worry about the rotten apple in the barrel, right? The Druids believed in the one supreme being, but also held that there was a body of lesser beings. This paragraph is fascinating. They believed in a fairyland of nature spirits, which manifested to mortals. All happenings were motivated by an interplay of unseen rays from the source. Therefore, the running of a hare, flight of birds, fall of leaves, patterns in sand, the sounds of waters were meaningful. Everything. So everything is, is like kind of these wheels that are in motion according to the greater light above the sun that's coming down, that's infiltrating. And it's, you know, everything has a meaning. Like when you, you know, you're in the woods and you see a deer, you know, and the, the deer jumps off, you know, runs away or whatever. It, that has meaning to it. You know, everything is intended, right? Uh, the, the changing of the seasons, falling leaves. And, and then, of course, they're talking about how there's a, literally a spiritual realm around us that we cannot see that, uh, that does become manifested to mortals all the time. And they call this fairyland. Their druids believed in the one. Uh, oh, okay, I just read that. I read that paragraph. Forgive me. The, their seven deadly sins were hypocrisy, theft, cowardice, fornication, gluttony, indolence, and extortion. Above all precepts were the three manly qualities, honor, courage, and manliness, and the three womanly qualities of decency, decorum, and chastity. There were female temple attendants, but no female druids. The druids who taught were called nemeds. They were waifs who knew the secrets of nature, and these were would not eat birds. Once every three years, there was a fire walking. Under the great night reflector, only four animals appear as ghosts, the dog, cat, horse, and hare. The ghosts of these could be forewarners of the crack of doom. Will-o'-the-wisp haunt the marshlands, but few are enlivened uh, by Ansys. Nico, the knights haunt the stony places and fells. There's a lot in here. I can't even comment on all this. Uh, it, it is interesting that the, because it said that the, you know, the spring of the hair, like everything had meaning, right? So they're telling you that for whatever in this culture, there was manifestations that we've had on here, uh, Sean Walking Bear, I don't know if he's here tonight, and they'll talk, he talks about in the Native American culture, how these spirits will manifest through these different animals. And in fact, nearly every single person has like their animal spirit, uh, so to speak. And so they're saying here that it seems like the, the dog, cat, horse, and hare were all, uh, animals or uh, manifest manifestations of spirits that they would appear in those forms and if you you know go up to uh ireland for example or scotland they have tales of a lot of the fairies are like actually horses they will talk about that 
Yosef Idowin and his brave band came to flowering Britain three years after the death of Yahusha. We saw this earlier. I, I'm contesting these numbers. It could be correct. Um, it, it seems to be anywhere from, most people say seven. Some people said 14. Three is really early on the timetable that he came, but it, that could be. He converted Gladys, sister of uh, Caridu, who married a Roman, and her sister, Agra, who was the wife of Salag, Adonai of Karsalag. After landing, he and his band passed through an avenue of oaks and standing stones. They first built huts over against the holy vineyard where the fruits were bitter. And I, I've commented on, of course, the avenue of oaks. I have an avenue of oaks right outside my window here. Um, going down the streets, and I, I feel like there's something in American history that they're hiding from us, that there was something very important about these Avenue of Oaks. It wasn't just like a, you know, coincidence. It wasn't just an, ooh, let's, you know, Avenue of Oaks, those are, those are neat, let's do that. After all the saints had gone to their rest, the first church and its surroundings became a wild place, a refuge for wild creatures. So he's dead now, and it looks like the church is dead in Britain. Then as the land remained holy, saints uh, came from Gaul who restored it. And one was Fergas the Briton who had served this place as a youth. So he was there as a youth under Yosef. Uh, he returns as an older man. Idowin was buried. This is, this is fascinating. Yosef uh, of Arimathea was buried in a shirt of fine linen, which he had worn when burying Yahusha and which was stained with three spots of blood on the chest. He was buried by the two-forked cross. The saints had lived in 12 huts surrounded, never diminishing well at the foot of the holy hill. You know, uh, and also a theory that I'm trying to get to the bottom of is uh, because we've seen pictures and, you know, you've heard of like the Holy Grail of Yahusha, of, of Yosef actually collecting the blood of Yahusha under the cross. And, you know, a lot of people, have said that's his metaphor or whatever i actually think i i think there might be something to it i think he might have done that i think he might have collected the blood and that yahushua hamashiach may have personally i wonder if he personally sprinkled his blood on the ark of the covenant after the resurrection it's just something i've theorized and i i, I think it's a way better theory than the the blood going through the crack uh theory during the earthquake Yosef Idowin was related to Avalak, whose kingdom bordered that of um, Ar Arvirigus through Anna the Unfaithful. So we know that um, Miriam's mother, Miriam the mother of Yahushua, her mother was Anna. And so was Yosef Miriam's father. So is he related to uh, someone in Britain through Anna? I don't know. Is this the same Anna? Anna the Unfaithful? I don't know about that, but, you know, whatever. He's related to someone. Uh, he, he definitely comes from Britain through his relatives. He converted Claudia Rufina, the daughter of Caridu, previously called Gladys, who married Pudens, a Roman. And uh, she's in, I believe, the Book of Romans. I'd have to check, but I think uh, Paul mentions her in the church. And had a daughter, Pudentia. In his 28th year, Caridu was betrayed to the Romans by um, Arisia, queen of Briantus. He married Gunusa, daughter of Claudius, to bind the peace agreement. The name Caridu means filled with love, but he preferred to use a warrior name. Gladys, sister of Caridu, married Alus uh, Plotius, a Roman commander. 
Karadu held an estate in Siluria, and he was made war chief when Guderius, son of Kimbalin, was slain by a slingshot. There's a lot of ways it could be slain. I don't know if I want to be slain by a slingshot. It seems like they're, you know, it's just, I'd rather, I don't know, so many other better ways than a slingshot. Uh, near the river Thames, in the year 59 of our Adonai, the British rose up under Weodika, the horse fighter who died nearly three years later when Gulgaeus became war chief. Caridou went forth with the bright, flashing, sharp-pointed spears of war. Bards, renowned judges of excellence, sang his praise. Even druids of the three great circles launched their eloquence in the five dialects and four tongues. Dancers from the steep Mount Gaily preceded him, and diviners from the high-pillared gates declared wise oracles. I am one who lived in those brave days. It is my right to be the master singer, for I stand in the last line of blood from the golden, strong-armed kings of old. My father's father was a bard of the high enclosure, prince of the true tribe, high caller of the Kimwi, a giant of song born of melodic race, light-tongued, harp-voiced. Well fitted am I to sing Caridou's praise, accepting great uh, Kili and the all-seeing diviners of the land, and uh, Sagittus, druids of the fine woven gold chains, and the chiefs of the splendid wars. I am first above all to open his mouth in honor. Thanks for hanging in here through this. We'll get through this. And it, it, it starts to get a little bit, some really fascinating things, as if this isn't right here, but hang, in with, hang with me. He honored all blue gown bards, singing bards of the land, guardians of the storehouses of winged words. Guests such as I were never wanting for provision while Caridou reigned, a high king over the wide land of heroes. He paid them well and sleek, fleet-limbered uh, coursers, cha uh, chasers of the wind-born hare. The valorous druids, feared by foes, the flowing, the flowing robe judges of dispute said, let songs be composed with melodious refrains to praise the savage subduing heroes. The power of the bard is in the uplifted shield shaking before the tumult, high riding on the battle leader's shoulder. It is in the quivering hair crouching in the bracken buried halo. And remember, they, they bring up the hair a lot. They've already told you about some apparently some spiritual connections with, with the hair. It is in the soft sighing promise of a fair-skinned maiden, in the finely shaped form of the terrible spear blade, in the bright-bladed sword clashing in the heat of conflict, in the homely comforting abode of the family. I have sung my last lay, the wonder days have gone, and strangers walked the land. The high-hearted bards have gone to their rewards, and the diviners' mouths have been sealed. Now it is the fashion to hear the babbled words of Bradigan of Wasogo, which stand before the resounding halls by the stream of sorrow at the very gates of hell. The purifying Kolgarth fires remain as transmuters to heaven. Happy is the flame-born one. Our fathers of old believed the fire was a form of creature which had to be fed with fuel, given share of the food, and in stressful times the sacrifice of a human. Now they're saying that in olden days, they sacrifice humans. They're not saying they did this now. They who uh, read the flames and embers are no longer with us, for they have been supplanted by the omen readers. As dogs can see happenings in the world of spirits, don't let that line escape you. I think that's true. I mean, I'll read this again. As dogs can see the happenings in the world of spirits. I think there's videos out there where like dogs, you know, but you, you get that, right? Where dog, there's, there's actually the song Good Vibrations by the Beach Boys. Uh, Brian Wilson actually said, 
that he uh, he based that on his dogs growing up because his mother would tell him how dogs could hear good and bad vibrations and that actually scared him and so he wanted to make a song that made him not scared uh, but th this you know this idea that dogs can kind of sense things right they can kind of see things that uh, we can't they're kind of they're, they're which makes them guardians beyond just the material realm right then whatever they do is important whatever a dog does is important because they can see uh, the world of spirits and a wise man watches them and takes heed. For if a dog sleeps before the fire, all is well. Be at peace. If he sleeps on a bed, then beware. <laughs> so for those of you who let your dog sleep on your bed, they're not doing their job. They're not telling you about, you know, things that they should. To sleep in a corner means strife and to howl means a death. Uh, to crouch and whimper indicates the presence of a spirit. So they're saying like, you know, if, if your dog's ever in that room and their ears go back and, you know, you can envision this, maybe there's, there's something there. And, you know, the idea of sleeping in a corner, I actually do that when I'm sick. Um, it's like when I'm sick and they're just like, let me die, just leave me alone. I'm just going off to the corner. Nobody disturbed me. So, of course, dogs do that too. I've, I've had enough dogs. I know that, you know, it was always fascinating. It's sad to watch them die, but it was always fascinating when they knew they were going to die. Every dog I've had, they've gone willingly. They just go off by themselves, like, just leave me alone. I'm just going to go over here. I'm just going to die. Just, you know, don't bother me. Happy are the bright spirits in Ellenden, the glorious sky isle where they await their call to return. So there's these spirits on a sky island. That's kind of interesting. All here have the lights around their heads. Come night and they visit earth in their dreams. If there be confusion in dreaming, then there is confusion in the daily round of life. Dream without confusion and see clearly and know you live well. Well, that's kind of interesting. Uh, the idea that there are spiritual, there are spiritual beings that, you know, speak in our dreams or, you know, deliver our dreams or whatever. And um, if you are able to remember your dreams and I guess maybe interpret them well i guess you're doing well that's kind of interesting it's an interesting thought versus you know not being able to remember your dreams and maybe you're having troublesome dreams or whatever you don't know what's going on when you wake up seek not to dream through the spotted elfin cap i don't know if anyone brought their elfin cap tonight or have one on reserve though it gives enormous strength visions and the gift of prophecy the elfin cap do not dream with the dung child, as did the seers of olden times. Yeah, don't don't do that. Do not look through the window of the egg vessel. Yeah, don't do that either. Just stay away from the egg vessel. These things are forbidden to you. Nor may you consult the tree-bound maiden, who in truth is a viper-blown gl glanid. I'm wondering if that's Lilith. I think that's a Lilith sighting right there. The tree-bound maiden. She's a, she's a viper. Keep away from her. That which was done on the high night of summer shall be done no more. So they're basically saying all these old rituals that the Druids did. You know, there's there seems to be a continuing of the, the Druidic faith, but it's through this idea, according to this text, of the teachings of Joseph. And like the, the ancient ways, the pagan ways, no more. You know, we're going to continue the teachings that 
truly come from Elohim, uh, but forsake those of the pagan way. Gems from the serpents must not be sought, nor may you follow the swan ship, though that which it bears within itself may be yours. Even so, it is unwise to bring the majestic sun down to incarnate incarnate in a stone. Yeah, don't don't uh, have a stone uh, incarnate from the sun. And know the secret of the sonship, and all wisdom will be rewarded. Seek it at Caroline. Those worthy ones who could drink from the glory glion are no longer a voice for the land, but there is a new chalice at the well. The phoenix sleeps in the holy hole of Carperol. Well, there's a phoenix reference right there. It sleeps. It does awaken every 500 years. If a man would know the mystery of, of um, I don't know if that's a misprint or but high. I feel like that's supposed to be another word. The secrets of these things, he must climb the mountain of tears and the veil of the dread. At the trysting uh, place of the sun and the moon chalice. Uh, this sounds like the plot line to the never-ending story, honestly. Uh, Thence must he go to the place of Brandigan, following the path of mysteries. This sounds epic. I want to go on this journey. If he does by the wanderer's way, he is lost. The secret of Dwiva is known to the knights of Karwadrin, who sit within the sacred circle. They fight the never-ending war with the powers of darkness. Now, this had my attention earlier, right? So there's these knights called the Knights of Caradrin, and they sit within a sacred circle and they fight the powers of darkness. And you guys know my thoughts on the possibility, it's just a possibility, that the Knights Templar were actually good guys rather than, you know, that it's all been the Roman Catholic Church that has fed us the breadcrumbs, the, the, the slanderous, you know, lies that have led us to believe that they are, you know, the bad guys. What if they're not? What if what if they were uh, the, the knights of, of the, the circle of light, you know, fighting darkness? Uh, we see this here. It is victory in the conflict of the soul which entitles the warrior to drink the cup of immortality. Well, that's some grail talk right there. The knights of uh, Karwadrin seek in a never-ending quest. The wisdom of the way by which knights and their ladies lives is let man follow the natures and ways of men, and women follow the natures and ways of women. Those are fighting words today. And let each serve the other rightly, meaning that a woman is a woman, and a man is a man, and let them serve each other according to a man and a woman. You know, each have their roles to serve each other. A woman cannot serve uh, as a man, and a man cannot serve as a woman. The heart of Britain is the moon chalice, which was brought here by the hands of the chief of the Cassini. He came shipborne to Rafinia, which is by the Mount of Lude, against Ardmol. Passing Innsdruck, he came to Aitine, where he hid the treasure in Trebithu. Uh, it was not captured, as men say, nor could it decay. In the fullness of time, it came to Cargwin. There it was kept secure with the Grail Stone, and the ever-virgin vessel, which was brought down the rays of the sun. Hmm. Sounds like an archaeological quest right here. Thus it was that these treasures of Egypt came to Britain. This was the secrets of Britain. And of course, as you guys know, uh, the as I mentioned last week, the Druids specifically said uh, in Acts 29, I think it was in Acts 29, yeah, that they originated from Egypt. 
and that they said that they were the Jews, the Yahudim, and that they came through Egypt. All right, we're on to chapter six, the writings of Imris Skinlaka. And uh, we are on page, oh man, I don't know if we're going to make through this tonight, but maybe I just need to read faster. So let's get at it. The master was born under the sign of the churl's wane at Dinsolin called Inzel by the Sons of Fire. And the year that the war wolves drove back the children of the horse. His father was one of the ornaments of Hugh. In his youth, he was a battle-blooded warrior. He was a dashing leader into the thick of the fray, a dauntless captain in the heat of the battle. The bearer of the battle hammer was a great-hearted, valiant warrior. He stood stern and steadfast in the grim work of bloodletting. Proud as the high-flying death eagle, he stood. A dark dooms bird flew over the land when the dark hawk gave battle. Behind came the sharp extractors of blood, the thrusting spears darting eagerly to the thrust, like ripples across a pond. Further and further spread the dying groans of doom-gathered men. The spear horde stood firm to protect the veil of Tad Wilch. It was a testing time of manhood. Knightly men will read these words with a swelling heart. They will feel for the heroic brides of bloody spears, for the shattered shields and splintered hafts. The valiant captain of men sounds the red horn and sweeps over the fearsome foe like foaming seas. They were consumed by his bright burning breath like the fierce bush flame raging through the brown bracken. The horse vaulting warriors rode in for the final salt. The patron of the blue bound bars swept the foe before him, raising the red shield, holding high the sharp slashing sword, enjeweled with the ruby red blood of warriors. It was a proud day for the ruler of the battle, the leader of strong mail clad spearmen, the scion of an illustrious race. Only real men know the exultation of victory. They cheered the battle chief, irresistible in a war rush. His spear dismayed the bloodthirsting, frightening foreigners. He, he wielded the dreadful blade of battle, which tested the manliness of men. Those were brave days. Now only mean-minded, faint-hearted buffoons lampoon the heroes of renown. Where are the manly men? Where are the chaste ladies? We were blameless for the outflowing tide of blood and entitled to the peace at the plow. The reward of the warrior is the tranquility of old age. Huh. I like that line. It's good. The pillar of battle, whose hands once wielded the hard down slashing swords, the dragon chief, is due the peace of age infirmity. If he is found among the gentle women, it is, is it of any account? for he has established his manhood before men. Thus spoke the master in the court of the king. I am a man who has never shirked his duty. I have stood fast in the fray. I have struck many a mighty blow. Am I any less qualified to speak on things of the spirit because I was what I was? I have stood at the gateway of the grave and I have slept the sleep of inspiration. As my arm weakens, my spirit strengthens. I am no longer a man of war, but a man of peace. But lest no man say before me that I am a shirker at the manly test, I am no lesser a man now. Hear my words and let your heart judge. If a man followed a sunbeam to its source, he would find the sun. And likewise, if he followed his mind, he would find the divine source from whence it came. From the high Elohim flows the inspiring spark in men, which kindles the flame of wisdom, truth, and goodness. Likewise, the mind project uh, its thoughts and plans, which are given from when expressed in words. 
When a man's thoughts come from a spiritual mind, they reflect the nature of the spirit above all spirits. When they are stimulated by desires, feelings, and urges, they reflect only the influence of matter on mind. So, Ken, you know, that uh, do we have a receiver from the spiritual realm above or are our thoughts, you know, just uh, how does he ref uh, say this here? Um, it, uh, reflect only the influence of matter, right? Those are the two differences. Individual man is not a separate being cut off from all others, living isolated in his own enclosure. All things are in unity, and the thoughts and feelings of others, living or dead, pass through men like water through the gills of a fish. No man is cut off from the free flow of life, which purpose is to bring forth new forms of life, absorbing the old and outworn and replacing it with the new. Uh, you know, I, I guess the only comment uh, at the moment that I would throw on this is that, uh, you know, talk about energy here, right? And how, you know, we, every, you know, even the spiritual world, even the material world, our spirits within this material world, you know, we are little creators. Everything we say, every, you know, all of our words, they, they manifest and they create, you know, they, they change, you know, water molecules and even our very DNA, right? Everything is, is being, uh, you know, created through, even through our feelings, as it says, uh, through the, our thoughts and feelings of others and ourselves, even living and dead, even dead people, uh, you know, I guess in Sheol, you know, maybe they are manifesting a certain reality too. Who knows? Have faith for this is the child of study and diligence. If, however, adopted by credulity or apathy, it becomes a useless thing. Faith is not an excuse, but an expression of hope. If, if made the refuge of the gullible, it is a thing of little moment. Faith is the spear of the, of the wise and the crutch of the foolish. So right there, I mean, because we talk a lot about, you know, faith in the church, right? And, and you know, there's the camp of Christianity that says, oh, all we need is faith. We need faith. No, no works, you know. No, not all churches are like this. But, you know, we've done away with the Torah. We don't need that. We just need faith. Just just believe, right? This is what we would call the crutch of the foolish, all right? But there are those who are using faith as a weapon, right? They're being proactive. They're, they're, like, they're, they're comparing it to the – the comparison they just made here are to the knights in battle, right? They're connecting the knights in battle, a spiritual battle using faith with their, with their shields and their swords and their spears on the horses and crushing armor. And then there are the foolish who are, you know, they're cowards, essentially. They're not fighters, and they're using it as a crutch. Does a crutch mean like excuses? The king said to the master, why do you who are of warrior state entertain uncouth and ignorant men? Some say you even prefer, uh, I think the master here is Yosef of Arimathea, if I'm not mistaken. Some say you even prefer their company to that of the wise and highborn. And the master replied, Sire, I will tell you how a teacher greater than I, this teacher, it's capitalized by Yahushua Mashiach, this greater te uh, great teacher greater than I dealt with such a question. And a land across the waters in the kingdom of Yehuda, a, a wealthy man gave a feast to which this great teacher was invited. As was the custom there outside the feasting place was gathered a motley crew of hanger-ons, hanger drunkards, thieves, deceivers, and harlots. Now, when the prime feast was over, the teacher went and sat among the outsiders and talked to them in a matter to their understanding concerning uplifting things. So he wasn't talking to them crude talk. He was, he was talking to them on a level they can understand, but it was all uplifting talk, right? Those within the, dis, 
those within and the Talmudim of this man were aggrieved because of this and sent out two men who said to the great teacher, tolerant master, is this a wise thing that you do? The words of such doings will spread quickly. Excuse me, I need to drink a little tea here. <clears throat> the words of such doings will spread quickly. And when they hear of this company that you keep, prudent men will shun you. <clears throat> the great man, Yahushua, replied, a worthy man never fails to do his duty wherever he may be. And what I am entails a duty to minister to such as these. As to my reputation, have I not taught that reputation is subservient to service? These, being Elohim's children, are our brothers. Yet their lives contain more problems unknown to you, because you have no knowledge of the nature of their burden. You, considering yourselves wise, cannot disclaim understanding and sympathy. <clears throat> These sinners are openly guilty. But such honesty is capable of transmutation into shame and shame into remorse. Those within are clever enough to cover up their guilt. And their duplicity and dishonesty cannot lead to shame and remorse. For they believe only that they are more clever than those here. Suppose those within who despise these sinners were to stand forth stripped of the hypocritical overlay covering their sins. What do you think you would see? I tell you, the inner aspect of many of those within is more hideous than that of many here without. So just to relay what just happened, I mean, this is profound, right? So he's out there hanging with, uh, you know, drunkards, you know, like sailors, uh, prostitutes, and he's talking to them, not crude. He's talking to them as a gentleman, uplifting, wholesome talk. But he's basically saying, like, look, you guys can shun me for talking to these people. But if those people in there, those religious people, were to be stripped of their – their hypocrisy were to be shown, they would be more sinful than these people. I mean, just sit and think about that for a few hours. <clears throat> for those within have much and therefore should be above temptation. Yet I tell you that the man with most is often the most uh, avaricious. The distortions of sin are not caused only by deeds done, but also by the suppressed wish and desire. I say to those who sit at the flesh pots, you covet the wealth of others. You envy the house or wife of your neighbor. Lewd thoughts burn in your minds when you gaze on the figures of women, so that your bodies lust after them. You practice deceit every day, wishing for wealth, position, and fame. The man who covets in his heart suffers as a thief, and she who lusts in her heart is a harlot. Those within heard these words but held their peace and were silent. Because they're basically like, wait a second. He's saying we're greater sinners than those people. I'm insulted. But they held their peace. They were silent about it. The master said to those who were beside him, their own hearts accuse them. For the hearts of the pure do not make such accusations. The impure cover the evil, polluting their hearts with hypocritical displays of righteousness. Excuse me. They hide their true thoughts by displaying loathing for things their hearts long to do. They revile others for their sins, but this is hypocrisy. They hug their worldly reputations won by deceit, but were the masks to be torn aside, they would be seen as wallowers in the mire of secret, sinful thoughts and hidden vices. Wow. 
One day, so the idea of wearing the mask, right? He's just saying they're, they're, they're actually, they're actors. They're just really good at, uh, great actors who happen to have a lot of money. One day, the master went to the encampment of the idol worshippers and said to one there, why do you worship images of wood and stone? The idol worshiper replied, I, I would assume this is when he was on his missionary journey up in uh, Og territory up there, uh, Mount Hermon area. Like when they went to the, uh, the, the Temple of Pan, for example. The idol worshiper replied, so that it will provide me with food and shelter and keep me from harm. And the master said, how can it do this when it cannot even move of itself? Said the idol worshiper, whom do you serve? And the master answered, Yahushua answered, uh, actually, well, no, I take that back. Maybe the master, I'm sorry, maybe we're back in Yosef of Arimathea. My bad. The, the master answered, I serve the great Elohim above all Elohims who can feed his worshipers everywhere. Said the other, see now your own actions contradict your words. For if your Elohim is everywhere, why have you left your home beyond the great forest to wander here? The master replied, I am not here to serve Elohim alone, but also to serve you. I bring wholesome fare as a gift of comradeship. Wayfaring with some way tamers, the master looked into a pool with, it, with all its life and said, what an imagination Elohim has. And they said to him, you have been taught in the shadow of the great master and may gaze on that which casts the shadow. But how will it go with our children and their children who know only the shadow of a shadow? The master said, behind every shadow, there is substance. If you see a shadow, believe there is substance somewhere. Words of wisdom. That's a great a little fortune cookie there. The, uh, there was a dyer with them, and he used the unripe berries of the buckthorn, which were for dyeing as a purge. Dyer's green weed gives a yellow dye, and wood mixed with this and lime gives a good green. The way tamers had a night light, which they made by heating a few oyster shells in the fire until they became white. Then they heated them in a container with double their weight in brimstone for three hours until they became red. This made a light in the night. Many times the master spoke wise words and his followers wrote them down, for he knew the way of words. So it sounds like we have the teachings. I, I'm assuming the master here is Yahushua. I'm not, I'm sorry, Yosef of Arimathea. I keep saying that wrong. I'm assuming this is Yosef of Arimathea. So his followers are going around writing down his words, which we also get with like uh, the writing of uh, the Gospel of Thomas. The same idea is that Taom is going around literally writing down the quotes of Yahushua as he, as he says them. And the book of the Nazarene or the Gospel of Kaleidi also says that there were actually people uh, writing down the words of uh, Mashiach as he spoke. That's kind of a cool thought. Anyways, this is what Yosef says. When the wind blows, it discovers every opening. Isn't that truth? Keep your eyes and ears fully open before marriage and half shut afterwards. <laughs> so before you marry someone, you know, be like the wind and get into every opening. You know, keep your ears you know uh your um your ears fully open uh to this person and then afterwards um you know uh close down the you know close the the the, uh, the storm uh shades keep your eyes and ears uh, okay even a thief does not steal from his own neighbors what does the wolf care if the sheepfold be destroyed progress is the creation of discontented people a wise man learns to love the lovable and to hate the hateful but more important is to know the difference. A child should behave towards his parents so that they have no anxiety except as to his health. 
and confidence in the wisdom of his actions. No law, unfortunately, we don't usually learn that lesson until we're parents and we're like, man, I wish, you know, when I was a child. No law whatsoever can ever unman a man or devirtue a woman. For the way uh, winters, the old law holds good. It is said that he who kills another unlawfully, who steals or robs with violence or rapes or seduces a maid or matron, shall be placed in a wicker cage and others with others and burnt. Now, this does not apply, but he shall be hanged at the crossroad. Um, it seems like they're discussing the different punishments, but they're saying, you know, these things are pretty serious uh, laws, uh, you know, robbing, violence, rape, murder. It is not unlawful for a husband to kill his wife's seducer. It is unlawful to require that a wife shall lick ash off a spearhead to establish her virtue. Yeah, so don't make uh, your wife lick ash off a spearhead to establish her virtue. I bet maybe this is like an accusation. Like, I this is okay. So this is where um, what Yosef is saying here is: Look, before you marry someone really pay attention to them because most people you know we fall in love and you, people rush into it and they don't pay attention they don't stick the red flags in and then afterwards they're super critical and he's like look you've already married them let's you know you're supposed to be critical beforehand and then once you marry them you know let's not and so here you see an example of a man apparently accusing his wife of being unvirtuous meaning unfaithful and to force her to prove that she has been faithful. She's apparently supposed to lick the ash off a spearhead. And I would imagine that that would be a pretty bloody mess. And they're saying, don't do that. That's unlawful. That's, that's a custom we don't do. The first God-given right of man was the right to maintain his family inviolate. And it is the duty of the rulers to uphold that right. So um, I think we could say that our current government is not upholding the right of a man to maintain his family from being uh, inviolate or, you know, not being violated. The seven qualities of manliness are courage, fortitude, kindness, integrity, truthfulness, consideration, and protectiveness. A stranger uh, accosted the master and said, I don't like your methods. And the master, Yosef, answered, is that so? Well, actually, I am not too satisfied with them myself. Tell me, how do you inspire men to live in harmony among themselves? And the stranger said, I don't. Said the master, I prefer the way I do it to the way you don't. <laughs> uh, so the other guy's like, he doesn't do anything about it. He's like, well, I'm not crazy about the way I do it, but it's better than the way you do it. Uh, the stranger said, you are unbending in your teachings. And remember now, the whole debate at the beginning of this is that the Druids were like, uh, yeah, you'll bend in your teachings and we'll find, the, you know, we'll bend if you bend. And apparently he's unbending. Is it, <clears throat> is it not wise to follow the path of moderation? We've all heard this a lot, I'm sure. And the, man, the master answered, I am not interested in moderate faith. We could call this lukewarm faith or moderate goodness. This is so good. Moderate honesty or moderate virtue. Uh, you know, this is, you know, people who maybe like we really want to live a holy set apart life and people are like, come on, man, you know, like, like live a little, right? There could be no moderation in things of vital importance. The moderate man is not for me. 
which you eat a moderately fresh egg? <laughs> this is so good. Would you eat a moderately fresh egg? No. Or want to live in a house that keeps out most of the wind and rain? No, I want a house that keeps out all the wind and the rain. Would you be satisfied with most of your wages or with moderate work from your servants? Uh, actually, well, I, a lot of people get less than most of their wages nowadays. I am not a moderate man, but one who plants his standard firmly. A standard of moderate morality is no standard at all. Could an army of moderate fighting men secure the land? Man, this is so good. Like, I just want to like quote this paragraph to like everybody. The master went on to say, maybe I need to make this paragraph like the theme of the unexpected cosmology or something like that. And the master went on to say, man lives for two things, the acquisition of knowledge and skill and the refining of the spirit through experience. He's saying that's the, the meaning of life right there, where these two things, right? The, the refining of the spirit through experience. We're down here in a place of chastisement, the material realm, a place of testing and trial to, to refine our spirit, right? To to return us to our former divine state. And of course, the acquisition of knowledge and skill, uh, what has come down, uh, emanated down from the most high down here. He who commands by his integrity is like the pole star, which remains constant, the North star, while others revolve around it. To give you the essence of my teachings, I would say, let all your thoughts be wholly good. So total, you know, not like uh, moderate virtue, but full virtue. One asked of the master, who shall be our teachers? And the master replied, they who by revitalizing the old wisdom of their forefathers in the land and adding to this new knowledge are suitable. When they asked who should preach, he said, he who should not preach what he desires others to practice is one to whom these practices are not normal. Okay, that's really wordy there. Let me try this again. He who should not preach what he desires others to practice. Okay, so basically there's a lot of people, you know, like practice what you preach, right? There's a saying for that. All right. To learn without thinking is futile. To think without learning is profitless. Wisdom does not consist of what a man knows, but of recognizing the limits of his knowledge. Listen always, but uh, speak seldom. Maintain, maintain silence when in doubt, and you will seldom get into trouble. Keep your eyes open, but forget what you should not have seen. There's some good advice right there. Never gossip and shun all gossip mongers. The master was asked, one of the problem with, you know, gossip mongers is that, well, I don't know, you guys all know, there's plenty of that online. The master was asked, again, Yosef was asked, how should a master deal with his servants? And he replied, promote those who are worthy and reward the royalty and train those who are incompetent. To know what is right and not to do it is cowardice. Wealth and station are desired by every man, but if these can be acquired or, or retained only to the detriment of his service to his creed, he must relinquish them. So don't live for money, right? Like you have a calling in life. And if, you know, if you have money and property and wealth, which helps you attain those things and helps other people attain those things, as Yahushua would say in the gospel of Clyde, even great. Uh, but not, you know, not to the, not to the uh, detriment of that. Poverty and subordination are disliked by all. 
But if they can be avoided only to the detriment of his creed, he must accept them with good grace. So, um, you know, if your calling calls you on that, then you must accept it. Become uh, paladins among the people, making the words of these writings that cause you serve, or the, the cause you serve. The inspiration is divine, but the medium is human. In the past, the pure light of truth was concealed from the multitude of people in riddles and a fog of jargon. Parables satisfied the people's understanding. Religion degenerated because in its higher aspects, it was not understood by the mass of the people. And there was a fear of casting pearls before swine. He's talking about the mysteries of heaven. Hence the mysteries and the need for ceremonial images and symbols. So, you know, the, the whole idea, right, of, of like the hieroglyphs in Egypt and those kind of things, is a lot of people take the exoteric explanation. Uh, but he, what he's saying here is that there's a deeper esoteric explanation and that the, what the mysteries did is they started getting really secretive with this stuff and hiding it because they were afraid of taking treasures and throwing them to the, uh, the swine. People more readily worship representations of Elohim because they cannot comprehend him and shirk the effort to, of trying to. Um, and so it's it's like basically saying it's easier to worship, um, you know, idols of, of Elohim or, you know, just material idols, right? Basically, it's easier to worship the sun than the true light beyond the sun. Maybe it's a good way to say that. Uh, Elohim cannot be represented by things of this world to the understanding of the aristocratic soul. There are Adamites whose souls slumber within and Elohim men who are the ultimate earthly beings. These are mysteries held close and safeguarded uh, by the Knights of Caradron. Remember those, 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 those knights again, the, uh, the circle of light, protectors of the realm, fighters of darkness, there they are. But which came to our master through Guagwin of the White Hawk Crest and Gualanad the Summer Hawk. Also through Paladar of the Spears and Lancelot, he who carried the Mystic Spear of Lot. So I don't know if that's the same Lancelot or if this is a different Lancelot. You know, maybe Lancelot was a very common name back then. Or maybe it's Lancelot of um, the Round Table. I don't really know. I'll let you guys decide on that. Uh, he carried the mystic spear of Lot, whatever that was. They who are ready will read these things with understanding. I'm not understanding this, so I guess I'm not ready. Hopefully, maybe somebody here is ready and you guys can then interpret that for me. Words are mysterious things within which can be hidden profound things. But enlightenment does not come easily or from mere reading of what is written. Greatness declined during the great peace when nights were lax and pleasure-seeking. Men forgot their past unity, and they were, there were quarrels and rebellion. Peace is a fatal sickness to the sons of Britannia. It was said of their battle chief that he lost every lesser battle and won every big one. Hmm, it's really interesting. The art of the scribe came to Britain with the high-browed one who taught Gwiladun of Ivern, who had seven subscribes. He said to the king, this strange art will make the Britons wiser and will, will improve their memories, for it is the very essence of memory which has been brought to this island. And the king said, most wonderful, uh, the writing, but while you may be prepared to bestow this, have you the ability to judge the worth of this art? Should not this be with another? 
The potter lacks the ability to judge the worth of his own pot, so the knight's his own horse. Therefore, the ability to judge the usefulness or harm of this new thing, writing, uh, should surely be with another. Now, you who are the master of letters have been so swayed by your affection for them that you endow them with powers quite the opposite of what they actually possess. For this new thing shall not increase the range of memory, but will lead to forgetfulness in the mind of those who learn this strange art. So he's, he's saying here, I think what he's saying is that uh, according to the king, the oral tradition is more powerful. Um, and, uh, you know, you, when you, when you, if he's saying like, if you're going to get all these libraries of books, in some ways you're going to get more lazy and relaxed. Uh, it encourages men to cease to practice their memory. So there you go. Are the legs of a horseman equal to those of a man who walks? With time, men will put their trust in writing, and these strange signs will discourage memory. We're having all sorts of problems with that today with the Mandela effect. They are not instruments of memory, but of reminding. Those who learn to read many things without proper instruction will then give an appearance of knowing many things of which they are in fact ignorance. So many, he's saying many learned men will be ignorance. They will be hard to get along with since they will not be wise, but only appear so. So it was that the art of writing did not come easily to Britain. Yet always there had been the letters on stone and the brand sticks, but these were not for ordinary men. Give an ass oats and he will run after thistles, such as the nature of man, and never went out an ass that came home a horse. <laughs> oh, I, I can see many wives saying that about their husbands. Never went out an ass that came home a horse. And I think, I think what's happening here with the king is that what they just said is that look, there was already writing in Britain. They just said that. I think what the king was saying here was that he didn't want the writing to go out to the common man. We've seen this theme throughout before, like you know, with the Roman Catholic Church and stuff. And um, you know, it was it was for like wise men. That was the idea. And um, you know, yeah, uh, the king had imprisoned one of the master's followers, and when the master sought the king's ear, his retainers drove him off. He returned, but this time they turned loose the hunting dogs upon him. The master stood firm and made no move, saying in his heart that if Elohim decreed that the hound should maul him, so let it be. The hound stopped before him and refused to obey the urging of those who trained them. This filled the heart of the king with wonder, for he knew the nature of the dogs of Britain, and he released the prisoner. It was at this place that the master was challenged to produce his Elohim. So I'm not, I'm not, I'm not sure, but I'm, I'm pretty sure that story right there um yeah okay that was one of all right i was trying to figure out if the uh if it was yosef having that discussion with the king about writing because as you know obviously but we see one of the master's followers one of his disciples is being hunted down by hounds and the hounds decide uh by an intervention from the most high obviously that they didn't want to um to get the guy uh they they kind of they went up to him and probably just let him pet him uh, but, you know, obviously we know that the Hebrews had writings and the king is, you know, he's kind of fighting back, I think. I think that's what's happening. I think he doesn't want this knowledge to come over, if I had to guess. It was at this place that the master was challenged to produce his Elohim. And they said, though you decry our images, we've seen this, that a lot, um, yet do we have likenesses of our gods while you lack even this. And, of course, the Hebrews were uh, charged with this many times as well. Your words are no more than puffs of wind. And the master said, these are the words of the report. To few has the arm of Elohim been, been revealed. 
Did it not shoot up before your eyes as a sapling from a staff? And did not the withered staff take root in alien soil? Even so will it be with my words. If you recall last week, he had a staff that I highly suspect the staff was the staff of Moshe, um, um, the, or what's known as the staff or the rod of Yahuwah. And um, somehow it had come down to him. But uh, remember uh, Aaron's um, uh, staff, how it blossoms, right? Same thing here. So... Uh, and he was saying that just as this staff that I stuck in the ground and it blossomed, and then I think uh, one of his disciples, they plucked like a branch off, they put it in water, and then that blossomed. Uh, he says, like, that's, that is what the gospel is going to be here. It's going to be just like that. I heard the spirit of Elohim in the night watches saying, go, carry my words of truth to the unbelievers, and it will be like the rain at the ends of a drought. My words shall strike deep into fertile soil. Its beauty shall be like the, the holly tree. Its fragrance shall fill the land like the scent wafted from a new mown meadow. You guys, and that's a that's a terrible smell for me because I have a history of asthma. You know, I, when someone mows the lawn, I'm like, oh, it goes in my lungs. You know, I could smell it from like a mile away. But um, yeah, I guess for the rest of you normies uh, who don't don't have asthma problems, I'm sure a, a, a Freshly mown meadows uh, smells really well scented. Uh, you, my servant, will plant a tree which shall shelter all nations. You say, show us the road. And I say, go a little way and you will come to a fork in the road. Take the turn to the right. Go a while along this until you come to an inn. Pass this and take the next road bearing left. A little further along the road, you will come to a village. And beyond this, a lane to the left. I actually find this pretty funny. A mile along this lane is a rise from whence you will see your destination ahead. A man who has been provided with this most complete direction possible from my intimate knowledge of the area may lose his way and become lost. Another man become, comes along later and is given exactly the same information, and he reaches his destination. No doubt the first man will revile his information and seek to blame him wholly upon him, declaring the directions to have been misleading. The other will declare how comprehensive they were. Uh, so, like, if you guys, you know, have ever been given the directions, like back in the day, you know, go down to the railroad track, uh, find the telephone pole on the right, make a make a left, go past the cornfield, make a right, and you're like, you're, you're like, this is crazy, right? But if you are familiar with that area, he's saying that uh, someone will go, those were the perfect directions, right? They're, they're, they have an intimate knowledge of this area. One person will be lost and they will first, they will think this is terrible uh, directions. The other said, no, that was spot on. It's perfect. Uh, my words direct those who listen with understanding along the road of man's destiny. This road will not change about and will always be there. Here too, there is one who knows the road well and gives clear instructions. Yet some become lost while others get there safely. I am only the shower of the way, the light on the path. I instruct all the same. So that's really fascinating. So it's it's like the, the the directions to get to the kingdom of heaven, right? Some of us are not going to make it and go. This is this is confusing. I don't get this. And others like, yep, made it. That was a cinch. Well, you know, maybe not a cinch, but it was spot on. We we did it. Did I ever say to you that if you followed me, I would make every secret known and reveal every hidden mystery? I did not, but this is not for all men. Suppose a man was pierced in the, in the breast with an arrow and his friend were to summon a physician skilled in such matters. 
What if the man said, I will not have the arrow withdrawn until I know who fired it and from what manner of bow it came, whether the archer be fair or dark, tall or short. I would know his name and his tribe. I want to know whether the, ar the arrow is fletched with feathers of a goose or a fowl. All right, so the example here is you've been shot in the chest. Did it say he was shot in the heart? He was shot um, uh, in the breast, okay? You're, you're shot in the chest. You got an arrow sticking in there. You got blood. You're going to die. And the physician comes along. He's like, I'm going to remove the arrow. And you're like, whoa, 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 whoa. I, I, I got this list of demands. I need to know first, you know, uh, what's the feather? Is this goose? Is this fowl? Like, what, what's going on here? Who shot this? Where did it come from? Why? And, and, and frankly, in, in my encounters with people, I have encountered many people like this where they walk away from the faith because they're like, they have all these questions and they're like, this doesn't make sense to me. And they just fall into despair. Such a man would die, uh, says uh, Joseph of Arimathea, and all his quarries would serve him not one jot. The man's life would come to an end, but still the great question which he overlooked would go unanswered. So it's like you're going to lose both ways. So rather than having your question answered, why not just live? Why was the arrow fired? It is equally foolish to say, I will not accept the teachings of this man until I know from whence he came. Who is his father? What is his estate? A man wishes to know what the land of Egypt is like, but does not wish to endure the discomforts and dangers of the voyage. Yet when others who have made the journey tell him about it, he says, I will not believe this until I have seen it with my own eyes. So there is only the choice of making the voyage or accepting the word of those who have done so. None can justly say because I have not seen it for myself because I decline to face the dangers and discomforts. The place does not exist. So in a way, that's like a, like, a, like a theological agnostic he's describing there. The master was asked, how shall we live to be in accord with the way of God or Elohim? And he replied, say not that you live for Elohim, for whatever man does serves man. Elohim is served only by serving men. Follow, follow the words of the wise and do not chase after fools. Learn about the ways of life and enjoy them to the full. Life is meant to be lived with excitement and joy, but never for mere pleasure or self-satisfaction. Discipline your daily doings and let these not become burdensome. Earn a congenial livelihood and in all things that you do, be honest, diligent, and careful. So don't, uh, you should live an exciting and joyful life. Don't confuse that for self-satisfaction though. Those are distinctly two different things. Excuse me. I need another drink here. Let not, uh, let not your thoughts be the sport of every wind that blows. This thought may come to you. I know when perfect conditions may be put aside. I know when pure things can be discarded. But a man may even be blessed with the good things of life and yet remain sorrowful and melancholy. For, that, for this he is by nature. Happiness and cheerfulness are not things flowing from affairs of the day or through circumstances. The sorrows of a sad man come from within. So that, that's kind of interesting there that uh, he's saying that uh, you, your happiness should not be based on your circumstances, right? It's, uh, it should be something that comes from within. So you shouldn't be able to blame your sorrows on other things. Uh, it says because it says that the sorrows of a sad man comes from 
within. It's, it's an eternal condition that we need to deal with when we have sorrow. It's something we need to reflect within. Things of the daily round of life should be directed in the knowledge of what is for your own good. There must be an understanding of the way of the path. Be upright, conciliatory in speech and rational in bearing, mild but not meek and with no vain conceit. Be content, having few material wants, frugal and composed in mind. Be discreet, neither insolent nor uh, um, avaricious. Do no mean thing, for this is not the way of a knightly man. Never act deceitfully or scorn another unjustly. Be free from sloth and spread goodwill to all. Many will merely read these things, which will go in one ear and out the other. There is no virtue in just reading them. They have to be lived uh, by to be of value. Wisdom can be given to men, but this of itself does not make them wise. And this goes back to the, the faith issue, those who use it as a crutch versus those who use it as an actual weapon, right? There are people who live by what they read in the, 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 the law of the Most High of Heaven, the Torah. They live by it and others just read it. It goes in one ear out the other. It's okay. I got my crutch. I got my faith, right? Wisdom is like a handful of seeds plucked from the seed bag. There is no value in them unless they be sown, nurtured, and reaped. So how many people, they come to the faith and they get their seeds and they just, they hold on to them. And it's almost like the, 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 the parable of the, the people who received the different talents, right? And the one just, you know, he hid it, he buried it, he didn't do anything with it. Uh, how many of us, you know, we, we get these seeds and we're just, we're sowing them, right? It's that's you know, faith becoming faithfulness. Be ever mindful of what is done. Know the body as it deals with the outside. A man thinks to himself, the, this body I wear as a garment is what I make of it. He does not neglect the body and is always aware of its existence and activities. This awareness is called mindfulness. Through bodily contemplation, a state of mindfulness is reached. So it, this is rooted here now. It's not just saying that our, you know, our flesh is crude. It's saying that if we are mindful of our bodies, we will actually, you know, if we take care of our physical, even though our, our spiritual is so much greater than our physical, if we take care of this, we will have good, you know, good spiritual health. So they're both, uh, you know, attuned to each other. The mindful man is ever conscious of every action and its consequences. He knows what he does, whether standing still or engaged in some activity. Whatever the body does, he is aware of it, and he has it under control. He knows his body to be filled with a variety of contents. He regards it as a peddler's bag. Examine the body daily in contemplation, and thus develop mindfulness. Contemplate the body made of earthly elements and solitude, and know that which contemplates is the spirits. Think of the body as if dead. What, en uh, what enlivens it? or enlivens it. What is life? Be mindful of all your feelings. If experiencing something unpleasant, be mindful that this is so. Be mindful of all the activity about you, of the sighing of the wind, of the song of the birds, the rustle of grass and whispers of leaves. Know the difference between that which is generated by the body and that which is generated by the spirits. Abide in the mindfulness of feelings. Teach the body to know itself more fully and to comprehend more of its surroundings. When a man is mindful of what flows from the body and what flows from the spirit, 
then he knows he is body and soul. That was that was powerful and deep. Recognizing that you know we are both body and soul. That there's like almost like two ways of describing a soul, right? There's like the body soul, but then there's the soul soul, right? And uh, that was deep. Be mindful of what is good and what is bad. Thoughts become confused when undirected. So like horses, they must be kept in hand through the restrictions of the, of the bridle, of the bridle and reins. There are lofty thoughts and base thoughts, thoughts which arise through the prompting of the body, urges, and, and thoughts which arise through the purifying pr prompting of love. So know the difference. Evaluate all your thoughts, which are my thoughts are fleshly, which come from the spirits, uh, the of spirit of purity. The wise man dwells in mindfulness of all things, body and spirit and everything around him, not overlooking the urges towards indolence, ill will, resentment, worry, and wavering indecision. Be mindful of ideas and ideals. Be mindful of the full working of the eyes, the nose, the mouth, the cars, uh, and the skin. That must be something other than cars. Uh, the scars, or no, the ears. It's probably the ears. Uh, that I don't know why this is cars, but the mouth, the ears, and the skin. The true way is the overcoming of self and the mastery over earthly conditions. For as a man changes himself, so does he change his condition. Man must be able to say, this is of me and this is not of me. This is me or this is not me. He must divide himself in two, knowing what is of the earth and what is of the spirit. Now, of course, you know, I, I'm a middle-aged man. I, I'm 42 years old. And when I hit that 40-year mark, uh, it, it was... I actually like the idea of somebody suggesting, I'm going to say this more often, that instead of seeing how old we are in years, it's levels. I am level 42. I'm about to become level 43 because it gets harder and harder. But there's something about crossing that threshold of 40. It, it really was my 40th year. And, and it was like, oh, my body is reacting differently now than it ever has. I'm not 21 anymore. And so there's something about, you know, when you're in your 20s, you can abuse your body. You can do all, you know, it's just, it's, it's like you got a chiseled body. You know, it, does, it doesn't really matter all that much, especially when you're a teenager and so on and so forth. But, you know, you really start feeling it as you get older and, and you start learning this lesson of, oh, like the health of my body is the health of my soul, you know, the health of my spirit. They're actually interconnected. He must travel the great path conscious of his twin self. That's this doppelganger. There's a doppelganger quote right there. Twin self. He should observe others whether or not they have the quality of mindfulness. He must be self-possessed by his own spirit. The self-possessed man acts with, uh, that's kind of interesting, right? Because we talk about being possessed by spirits. So are you possessed by spirits or are you self-possessed? Everybody's possessed according to this, but you're either self-possessed or possessed by evil unclean spirits. So next time, you, that, that's a fun little party fact right there. You, you can say, are you self-possessed? He must be self-possessed by his own spirit. The self-possessed man acts with composure, mindful, and self-aware. The man of turmoil is he who goes abroad with senses unguarded. Without mindfulness, he is unsteady and unstable in thought. The godly life is one which attracts friendship, which is the appreciated revelation of beauty. It is the search for beauty in all things. That's gorgeous. The holy prophet in his austere, dank, dark cell is not true holy. The long-faced preacher is not truly holy. The godly life is associated with beauty. 
Whenever a man reaches out after the beauty found in purity of spirit, he is uplifted. It is by not understanding the true nature of godliness that men have become entangled like fowls in a net. They are like leather covered with mildew, like logs encased with moss. God, godliness is attained by abandoning worthless things, by not falling into the fallacies of unchastity, by the repulses of sensuality and the rep, repudiation of evil. This can be done by mindfulness of such things. When a master takes an apprentice, he gives the first lesson. Come and be disciplined, learn restraint and obligation, learn right behavior. When the pupil is controlled, then he gets the second lesson. The master says, seeing things with the eye, do not be misled by their outward appearance. Be mindful as to what they do to you. See with your mind all that the eye sees, and so it is with all the senses. Be aware of everything. Experience all things, but do not become immersed in anything. For man is shut off from the spirit by mindlessness. As he be think of like bread and circuses, right? As he becomes more aware of the material things and happenings about him, so does he more and more become mindful of the spirit. He who says, I have no feeling of the spirit is a man of small mindedness. He is mindful of what is at his hand, but unmindful of what lies beyond. What lies beyond forms a veil through which he cannot see. How can a man mindful, uh, how can a man mindful only of what holds his immediate attention be aware of the world beyond his narrow confines? Be like the spirit-filled earth who accepts unto herself all the foulness which you cast out of your body and cleanses and purifies it. She is neither disgusted nor delighted, but transmutes it. Some alchemy for you right there. But the idea that the earth, you know, it's, 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 it's designed to just regenerate, right? To, to heal itself. The earth is designed that way. Water accepts both foul and fair, from, for from its embrace, both emerge together in goodness. The wind is not disgusted with the foul smells of earth, but mixes them with the essence of earth life, so that they are sources of fragrance. So the, the, the earth is always cleaning up you know, the mess, if we let it. Practice kindness, compassion, poise, and decorum. Contemplate beauty and banish ugliness. Contemplate virtue and goodness and banish carnality. Contemplate the eternal and banish um, impermanence. For all things of earth must decay and pass away, and it is the destiny of every human being to embark on the dark adventure. Thus the master spoke, and he said, You must accept any intelligent person into the sheepfold, except all who are willing to follow the light of our way. I say this not desiring to win followers or wishing to turn others from their ways if they walk in light. I seek only those who walk in darkness or seek a better light. For all journey towards the one light, but not seeing it in its perfection, they must travel by the reflection they see. Each sees a different reflection, and therefore men dispute among themselves as to the nature of the truth behind it all. Be not one who indulges in such futile foolishness. Okay, pause. So... Uh, he just talked about reflections, and I love this. This is one of the reasons that I became way long ago a professional photographer, because I was obsessed with reflections. So imagine you're—we uh, live right here on the water. I see reflections all the time. So you're 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 in the woods. You 
you're, you're at a stream or a lake and you see the reflections and they come straight at you. Well, nobody else on the earth can see that reflection. Only you can see that reflection. The reflection in a way is an illusion. Um, it's not, it's, it's, it's a strange reality because somebody standing over here, over here is going to see it completely like they're not going to see the reflection that you see. Does that make sense? You can even think of it that it's like the, the rays of the sun on the water, all that kind of stuff. And so what they're, what they're saying here, and this is a constant theme throughout this literature is that uh, I think we're going to read this in the book of wisdom is it's a instructions for prophets on not to overstep your bounds because what happens is, is people who get these, what we call transmissions uh, from the spiritual realm, we interpret it in wrong ways, right? We, we're seeing, it, we're, we're kind of like, we're seeing these reflections that nobody else can see, right? And people do it all the time and they write down their biases and that kind of stuff. And we see these in a lot of what I would call extra biblical books where you, you dig through some of these and there's some profound truths. And then there's some things like, yeah, I think he inserted his own understanding and here's something he was reading into this that wasn't actually accurate. And that's it, what he's kind of getting at here, uh, that we, we'd be very slow to speak and not overstep our understanding. And when we have dreams and prophecies and words and things like that, that, you know, we're, we're kind of receiving it through like a transmitter and, you know, we don't, it's kind of like phone tag, right? You don't always get the, uh, the message accurately. Just beware of that. All right. Uh, let's see, where was I? Um, it's, oh man, I try, uh, let, let's just start here. Never judge virtue by outward appearance, for then the evildoer as well as the saint may lay claim to it. An artful imposter may gain more admiration than is given to the zeal of a saint. And, oh man, <laughs> an artful imposter. So the people who, you know, sometimes very charismatic and people that are attracted to these people the the zeal of a true saint is like kind of kind of snubbed you know they're, they're shunned they're like yeah that guy doesn't got anything do not nourish the canker worms of malice hatred envy and jealousy within your bosom it is truly said that the heart of man is a labyrinth goodness is not merely a matter of right action it includes brave uh bravely enduring and surmounting difficulties the final test of character is when trouble comes in strength then the question is not so much whether a man does what is right as to whether he can stand up with integrity to what life does to him the anvil stands steady when the hammer falls so what he's saying is that he's saying you want to be an anvil when the hammer's pounding down you're the anvil and you don't you know you don't get destroyed in that right you're able to to stand up against what life throws your way it's one of my favorite lines in the rocky films you know those are I love the Rocky films because it's basically like the anth anthropology of what it is to be a man. And it's, it's all, you know, the, the fighting is all an allegory. And, and he says, in I think it's the sixth film, he says, he talks about how winning is done. And he says, it's not about how hard you hit. That's what everyone confuses. They think you have to hit really hard. It's like, no, no, no. It's about how hard you can get hit, fall back down and get back up and keep moving forward. You get hit, you fall down, you get up, and you move forward again. He says that's how winning is done. And it, that's exactly what he's saying right here. Manliness involves recovery from every moral failure. It involves the retention of honor. What honor is to man, chastity is to women. Okay, so when, he's, when they say a man has to be a man, a woman has to be a woman, honor and manliness and chastity and virtue and so on. 
honor and manliness endow a man with inner strength. His slightest word, his very presence, bring peace and leave others strengthened. No man or woman, no matter how humble, can be really good without the earth being better for it, without someone being helped and comforted by that goodness. Words such as the, so hopefully your manliness and your, you know, your uh, chastity, you know, they will, what they will do is they will actually, uh, uh, they will help or benefit other people, right? It's going to flow into other people, to the earth itself. Because he talked about that, right? How the earth actually takes evil things as well as good. Words such as these blow against the whirlwind of human nature, yet they are the stuff of the spirit. When the when the breath of the multitude blow back the whirlwind, then life has fulfilled its purpose. Say not that the days of victory of good will be brought in with a griffin's egg. Uh, this is, I, I actually didn't know griffins laid eggs. That's the first time, you know, reading this book, the first time I heard that. They talk a lot about eggs in here. No man is free who does not control his own movements. No man is free who is not master of himself. Fear is the tribute the mind of man pays to guilt. He who has never been guilty knows no fear. To see the path of duty and not to follow it is the way of the coward. A man tarnishes the luster of his greatest actions when he applauds them himself. No man is more vile than he who causes a woman to shed tears from the heart, tears generated in remorse and regret. So men, you do not win... When women think about your name, you know, your, one of your goals in life. This was actually, a, a, I think, one of the quotes that John Adams, President John Adams, told his, his son, John Quincy Adams. He said that um, he, said, he, he told him that he was so loyal to his wife. He said, there is not a woman on this earth who will blush at the thought of my name. And, you know, he, he was uh, comforted in that. And so the idea is, is that hopefully there are no women. If you are a true gentleman, a true knight, a true, you know, um, uh, yeah, uh, that there should be no, um, I, I say, I should say a chivalry, a chivalrous man. There should be no woman on this earth who, uh, has remorse, remorse or regret because of you. That should be one of the goals of true manhood. Every maid has the potential for ladyhood. So there you go, ladies, every maid, a lady never flaunts her estate, but ever remains modest and reserved. She covers her virtue with ladylike ways, for as a veil adds to beauty, so is chastity enhanced by being veiled. The wise woman, uh, the wise woman pays no notice to the spider's lullaby from the lips of hypocritical men who speak of love. The spider loves its prey. Babblers are not wanted. Shun the sophist and their sophistry. I didn't know the uh, the sophist had sophistry. But that's the first I've heard that. So, of course, the, you know, the, the Greek philosophers and their sophistry. And be uh, cherry, or, or this should, I think, be weary, uh, weary of divinators. So if you were reading about magic and the Druids, uh, mag magic here early in the book, and that was kind of some red flags for you, here you have Yosef of Rama coming and say, you know, keep away from the diviners or the divinators. Avoid the panem and be as strong as a bull, light as a hawk, swift as a deer, and tenacious as a salmon. Jump up that string. Get up there. You can do this. If things go against you, never despair. To be vanquished and still not surrender, that is victory indeed. 
Avoid the tail bearer and do not listen to the witch's whisper. Yeah, don't do that. Be prudent. Giants, giants step off the path in the realm where a dwarf is king. Avoid the daydreamer and the money luster, the vagabonds, and the woman fascinator. Avoid the honey-tongued hypocrites. For it were better you took a viper to your bosom than to open your heart to one such as these. Do not become a griffin. This with the, it's keep away from the griffin eggs and the griffins. I don't know what's going on with that. All right. I think this is a good – well, let me see. Um, yeah, because I got 20 more pages. I really wanted to finish this tonight, but we're taking our time. And uh, we may be able to start the Book of Wisdom uh, next week. We'll finish this. Maybe we'll start that. Uh, thank you, everyone, for going through this with me. I hope you guys enjoyed this. I found this fascinating. And um, so uh, Shabbat Shalom one last time tonight. We'll go over to the, the general voice chat, and we'll let the after party begin.